0: Well, good evening. Good to see you. Glad that you're here to study God's Word together. Last Wednesday night, after we left, you got to go home and see a World Series Championship from the Rangers. So, that's good. Glad they they finished it off. That's right. So, anyway, we won't do that tonight, but we will study God's Word. Good to see everybody. Hope you're having a good week. And uh, we are to Chapter 3. Verses eighteen through, or rather, 8 through 13 tonight, entitled, uh, a Bible study entitled Culture Shock. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get started in our study together this evening. Father, thank you tonight for the word you've given to us. Your word is life, it is truth, it is you speaking to us. And God, every time we open the pages of your, your word, we hear your voice, and we know that what you're speaking is truth. So I pray tonight the Holy Spirit would be our teacher as we read these verses together. God, thank you for what you inspired Peter to write many years ago and how it relates to us today. I pray that you'll just um, apply it to each one of us so that we can please you in greater ways. God, thank you for everybody who's here tonight. Nobody's here by accident. We're here because you want us to be here. Those joining us online as well. And I just pray again, you would, uh, your presence would be here and you would fill the place this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. well turn with me, 1 Peter chapter 3, we are to verse 8, and just as a reminder where we are and what's going on, Peter was writing to a group of Christians who were not Jews, they were Gentiles, they were non-Jews in Asia Minor, just south of the Black Sea. So, they're not close to Jerusalem, they're not close to Israel, they're a pretty good ways away, probably got saved at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter preached, Holy Spirit came, they accepted Jesus as Savior, went back to the area south of the Black Sea, and now Peter is writing back to them because they're trying to live for Christ in the Roman Empire. Think about that. If you studied history, you know what the Roman Empire is like, you talk about a culture that's hard to live for Christ and hard to be a Christian, uh, that's a culture that it was hard to live for Jesus in the Roman Empire. So the question was, how do you live for Christ in a culture that is hostile to your faith? So that's what the entire letter is about. He's writing and saying, here's how how you can do it. When you're trying to live out your faith in Jesus, culture is hostile to you. They don't understand it. Here's how you do it. And again, that relates to you and, and me tonight. We live in a culture that doesn't really understand what we believe Uh, They look at what we believe and say that we're old-fashioned, we're not progressive, we're all of these things, and so sometimes hostile toward us because of our faith. So what he tells them really does relate to us. So first thing he told them as he wrote the letter was, first thing remember, as believers, you are born again to a living hope. You're not one that has a dead hope or false hope or hope only in this life. You have a hope here and now that also when you die, you have a hope for heaven. So you are most blessed because of Jesus. Secondly, he said, because you're a believer in Jesus and you have this living hope, you um, should be holy. You should, God's holy, you're, you should be holy. Now we talked about that. Holy does not mean sinless. It doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean you never make a mistake. Holy simply means to separate. Separate. So, just as God is separated from His creation, God's holy, His creation's not, you and I as believers are to be separate from the world. We're not to think like they think, we're not to go where they go, we're not to value what they value, we're not to vote like they vote. All the things of the world, we all have different values as believers. So, we are to be separate, we're to be holy. Then after He said those two things, you're born to living hope and you need to be separate, He then went to a section that Martin Luther called, in German, Hostaphone, which literally means table talk. As a family, let's sit around the table. There are some things we need to talk about as a family. So, starting in chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 7, he goes through, how do you respond to people in authority over you? How do you do that? So, he talked about three different groups. Number one, he talked about chapter 3 verses 13 to 17, how do you submit to government? Governing officials, uh, the president, the governor, uh, your local officials, how do, you, how do you relate to them as a believer? What if they're unbelievers? What if they're telling you to do things that the Bible tells you that you shouldn't do, or vice versa? How do you respond And so Peter said, How you respond to governing authorities, a hostile government, is you obey, unless what they tell you directly contradicts Scripture. You pray for them, and uh, you honor them. So, as believers, that's what we're to do to a government that doesn't understand Christianity many times. Second section How do you submit to people in authority over you? Chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. How are slaves to be subject to their masters? They are to be subject to their masters. That relates to you and I as employees. How do you relate to your employer? Well, what if if they're angry to you or mean to you or whatever? Uh, You know, how do you relate to them? You are to submit to those in authority over you, such as an employer. Uh, And then lastly, the last section, last week, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, how are husbands and wives to relate to one another. And he went on for six verses about wives and only one verse about husbands, but we saw both of the things he said to husbands and wives, both, were very powerful. He said wives are to submit to their husbands and husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. Uh, as honoring them as the weaker vessel, but as co-heirs of grace, not only is she your wife, she is your sister in Jesus. Uh, both of you are have experienced the grace of God. And then he said, as we closed last week, men, if you husbands, if you don't treat your wife right, then God will not hear your prayers. He closed that by saying, "You so that your prayers will be unhindered." the way you treat your wife. So that's where we ended last week. So tonight we start out with letter A on your outline, verses 8 and 9. What is expected of all groups? All three groups we've talked about. What is expected of every group that is a believer in Jesus? So read with me verses 8 and 9. Chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you, that means all believers, men, women, employers, uh, wives, husbands, everybody. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing." Now, let's stop there for a moment and and see what he was saying that we as believers should do. Notice he says, finally. Now, that doesn't mean the letter's ending. That just simply means this section is ending. The section of how do you respond to those in authority. This section, verse 8, primarily deals with attitudes. Not necessarily actions. Attitudes. Now, these are the kinds of attitudes in verse 8, Peter said, that all believers are to have. We're to have unity of mind. We're to have sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. These are all attitudes. And what he said was, just your attitude as a believer can impact a hostile culture. Now, to be honest, uh, attitudes are foundational to actions. Most likely, you're going to act what your attitude is. Now, sometimes, as believers, we need more of a change in attitude than we do actions. To be honest, you're here on Wednesday night you're probably those that are the most faithful. You're probably those that your actions are going to be, you're going to be faithful to come to church. Your actions are right. Sometimes all of our attitudes aren't right. To be honest, I am, I'm not tempted to go get drunk. I'm not tempted to even drink. I'm not tempted to go to the bars. I'm not tempted to do drugs. My actions... Are going to be right but my attitude may not always be right so Peter said first thing you need to watch in a hostile culture not your actions but your attitude now he lists what these attitudes are let's look at sometimes we just read through them quickly and don't think about them let's let's think about them for a moment Unity of mind. Finally, all of you, says, verse 8, unity of mind. In other words, as believers, be harmonious. It literally means same-mindedness. Intent on the same thing, the same sentiment, the same aim, the same purpose. They're to be identical. Now, you say, wait a minute, Pastor, we're all different. We're not identical. Exactly. But our minds can be the same. We have different personalities. God gave each one of us a different DNA. Uh, He created us all different, but we can all have the same mind. And that mind is, please God first. So we can all have a unity of mind. Now, it, it implies, as he writes this, Peter lists this first, I believe, because nothing so impresses a lost world than looking at believers and seeing that we're all of the same purpose you remember Jesus said they will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another so a lost world a culture that doesn't understand Jesus looks at you and me and says they're all different but they all have the same mind the mind of Christ Now, what is implied in unity of mind also means cooperating with people who have individual differences. We all have different personalities in this church. But that doesn't mean that we should be at odds with one another. We all don't have to sing the same tune, but our tunes should harmonize with one another. Choir on Sunday. They don't all sing the same notes, but when they all come together and put them together, it, it sounds beautiful. So God's created us different, but most of us need to have the unity of mind that God has demanded. Sometimes we say, yeah, if everybody thought like I did, then we would have unity of mind. Well, it must be the mind of Christ. Now Sometimes I think in churches we just kind of dismiss this. Well, you know, we're all different and oh so-and-so, they're just kind of weird, you know, and they oh over here, I just I just don't get them, and we just kind of dismiss it and go on. But the first command is make sure your mind is all the same, not your actions, not necessarily your personalities, but the mind of Christ. Second of all, notice he says to have sympathy. That means suffering with one another and entering into their feelings. It means having compassion. Some people are better at that than others. Some of you out there, very compassionate people. Others of you, you don't have much compassion. And so this is something that God commands us. Sometimes we'll be talking to somebody and they'll be telling us all that they're going through. And they're wanting somebody to fill with them, and you can't wait for them to stop talking so you can tell them all you're going through, and tell them about what you're doing. And sometimes we even our conversations can get self-centered. Sympathy with someone is the opposite of self-centeredness. This is uh, what's called a hapax legomenon. Some of you know what that is. That, that, that is something that a writer only says one time. And Peter, in this word, sympathy, he never uses it anywhere else. Only time he's ever mentioned it when he's talking about the mind Christians should have. So, sharing feelings. Look what he says next. Brotherly love, we know what that is, Philadelphia, the Greek word Philadelphia means brotherly love, a special love that unites brothers and sisters in Jesus. On The last night before Jesus died, told his disciples, John 15, love one another, because we should be marked by that. Brotherly love one for another. third thing, or the fourth thing he says, a tender heart, kind heart heartedness. It means feeling deeply for somebody else. You know those kind of people. There are some people, they, they're they kind-hearted, they feel deeply for other people. Others, well, yeah, they're not so much so, you know, and we kind of look at it as a spiritual gift. Well, some people have it, some people don't. Kindness, folks, is not a spiritual gift. Being polite and courteous and kind literally means friendly minded to one another is not a spiritual gift some people have and others don't. Peter said it's a characteristic every single one of us should have kindness and politeness and courteous and friendly mindedness. Not all Christians do. We just kind of discount that. Well, it's our personality. It has nothing to do with personality, it's the spirit of God he put in you. And so humble mindedness or other tender-heartedness maybe something some people need to work on then the last one humble mind willing to put somebody else's interests and needs before your own humble mindedness now dr davids who is uh, probably one of the foremost bible scholars on first peter and james both said quote Christians, you look at all, verse 4, add it all together. What Peter's saying is Christians are to be emotionally involved with one another. Emotionally involved with one another. Sometimes it's so easy to come to church and be detached. I'm coming to worship the Lord. I don't care what everybody else is going to do. If you speak to me, I might speak. I might not. I'm going to sit where nobody's around me, and I'm just going to be to myself and leave. And he's saying that's not the approach to the Christian faith. It's, we're a group of believers that David says is to be emotionally attached. Now go to verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this is what you were called to, and that you may obtain a blessing. Let's look at what he says. First of all, do not repay evil for evil literally means do not give back a base thing for a base thing or a mean thing for a mean thing in exchange. Tit for tat. Don't do that. The greatest challenge to obeying, verse 8, comes when somebody does you wrong. So he tells us, verse 8, here's how you're to to act. And then verse 9, but when they treat you poorly... Here's how you respond. You do not pay back evil for evil. Remember Jesus said that. Remember Paul said that. And now Peter's saying that. And if anybody demonstrated it, it's Christ. He did nothing but do good, healed and fed and taught. He, they loved being around him. The kids loved him. Everybody loved being around him. And the, and the authorities hated him, was evil toward him, and he didn't hate back or treat them with evil back. So we should return positive deeds for evil deeds. It's hard to do, isn't it? Somebody does evil to you, for you to do positive to them is hard. Most of the time, we just ignore them. He didn't say ignore them. Somebody's evil to you, mean to you, it angers me, but I'm just going to ignore them. Go on. He didn't say ignore them. He said do good to them. That's hard. Warren Wiersbe says if you return evil for good, somebody does good to you and you're evil back, he said that's satanic. If somebody does good for good or evil for evil, that's normal. That's human. But if somebody returns good for evil, that's godlike. He's right. That's godlike. And then he goes further, reviling for reviling. That's a more specific example. The word revile means to criticize in an abusive way. In that culture, Christians were being criticized in in an abusive, angry, or insulting way. Sometimes in our culture, you as a Christian, you're criticized in an angry or insulting way because of what you believe. So, in a sense, some of you may be reviled. So, if we are, we should call down good on those who revile us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you may remember, it is not to your credit if you only do good to those people who do good to you. Lost people do that. And he's right. But, when somebody treats you poorly, and you respond not poorly back, not ignoring them, but with good, that's God-like. And that's the command. Now, one theologian said, quote, No dispute, argument, or personality conflict among brothers should ever linger. Any problem Christians have with one another should be small and short lived. You know what? You can walk into any church in America tonight. And you will find people there who attend the same church, known each other for years, and they had a falling out years ago, and they still don't speak. now listen again to what he said. No dispute, no argument, no personality conflict should ever linger among Christians. It should be small and short-lived. That's what he's saying here. Then he says, you were called to this. God called you believers to this, that you may obtain a blessing. The word blessing in Greek is interesting there. It's the word eulogain. We get the word eulogy from it. You go to a funeral and the eulogy is when somebody stands up and speaks well. Eulogain literally means to speak well of someone. Someone stands up and speaks well of the dealer departed. That's a eulogy. And that's the word for blessing here. Whenever you don't repay evil for evil, whenever you don't revile when you're reviled, you are spoken well of by a culture that doesn't understand Christianity. You show them Jesus by the way you react when you're attacked. But folks, if you act just like a lost person, they're not going to see the difference. Now, how do we bless instead of insult? How do we pay back eat good and how, how are we a blessing? Well, I just jotted down some practical ways. I think you're a blessing instead of uh, like we're called to be in verse 9. Whenever you keep from talking about a person or a situation. Whenever you walk away from a situation, whenever you do positive things for someone, whenever you seek to make peace, whenever you bury issues instead of keeping them alive, whenever you bury past hurts, that's being a blessing. That's being a Eula gain. But if you talk about situations all the time where you were hurt and you keep bringing it up and you keep talking about that person, you're not burying it. You're not being the blessing. You're keeping it alive. Bury it. And you're a blessing. Now let's go to verses 10. letter B on your outline quoting Psalm 34. Verses 10, 11, 12, Peter now quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 34. If you notice in your, in your Bible there it's kind of indented like poetry and the reason it is is because it's a quote of an Old Testament book. So he's quoting Psalm 34 when he says, verse 10, For whoever desires to love life and see good days let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let me give you background. Psalm 34 was written by David. David, the background was 1 Samuel 21. If you remember, Saul was trying to kill David. Because he's jealous of him. And he did all kind of things against him. He spoke evil against him. He did all these things that that were described here as happening to the the Gentiles, Christians there in, in Asia Minor. So Saul is trying to kill David. David's on the run for his life. And rather than trying to get back at Saul, he would not touch God's anointed. But it got so bad, there was nowhere in the country of Israel he could go. David could to escape Saul. So if you remember in the story, he went down to the Philistines, country of Philistia. Remember, they're the ones that David kept defeating, Goliath and all the others. And so he arrives and they're going, hey, what are you doing here? But there's nowhere else you could go. And they're all going, um, aren't, you the, aren't you David from Israel? And, and he he acted like he was a madman. You remember that? Acted insane. He, the Bible says he let spittle run down his beard and drip off, and he scratched on the gates like a like an animal, and and like he he, he acted insane, thinking, "Oh, it's not David, it's somebody else." But Abimelech, probably a title, a kish, the Abimelech, the king of Gath, said, "Well, no, get out of here. I don't need another madman here. Even if you're not David." And so David had to leave. And it was as he was leaving, most likely he penned psalm 34 so think of that now whenever he says whoever desires to love life and see good days you gotta keep your tongue from evil he had all reasons to talk badly about Saul and you need to keep your lips from speaking deceit he had every reason to talk about Saul let him turn away from evil and do good do good to Saul and so, as he's talking here, you can see, and Peter uses that instance for those believers in Asia Minor in Peter, in this letter. This psalm is an example of somebody who demonstrated verses eight and nine that comes from turning away from evil and doing good. Somebody's trying to hurt him, someone's trying to do evil, someone's causing him pain. And he responded in a way where he says, You just got to do good back. To love life in verse 10 there literally means to live in an intelligent way. Intelligent way. A purposeful way. Keep his tongue from evil. Only a heart that is free from anger and bitterness can keep a tongue from evil. Because folks, if you've got bitterness in your heart tonight, your tongue's going to talk evil. If you've got anger towards somebody in your heart, your tongue's going to show it. In fact, your tongue shows exactly what's in your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the Bible says the mouth speaks. So, the way to keep from speaking evil is to clean up the bitterness here. So, turn away from evil, do good, seek peace... And pursue it. But then look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The word the, the definite article in the original Greek is not in there. So it's literally just for the eyes of the Lord are on righteousness. And his ears are open to their prayers. Does is wait a minute, is he implying that if you Harbor anger and bitterness in your heart and it comes out of your, of your mouth? God won't hear your prayer? It's kind of implying that. You see, we have the image that God hears everybody that pray. We've told that in culture. Oh, if you just pray God to listen. No, there are a couple of times in here he says he won't. He said, husbands, I won't listen to you if you treat your wife wrongly. And he says here, if, if your mouth is full of deceit and your are coming from your heart, I'm not going to listen to you until you get it out. And in the Psalms, it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, I pray. That's what Peter says. And then he says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In, in Hebrew culture, your face was your entire body. And so, it meant literally, not, not just God's face is turning away, but who God is turns away from you. His whole being turns away from you. So, that's a pretty high standard. It makes me want to do right, not return evil for evil, speak right, not have anger in my heart, because I want God to listen to me and I don't want Him to turn away from me. Pretty good incentive. So if you summarize verses 10, 11, and 12, have clean speech, keeping your tongue from evil, have honest speech, your lips from speaking guile, live uprightly, turn away from evil and do good, and live peacefully, seek peace and pursue it. So that is from Psalm 34, what Peter said they needed to do in that culture. Now, the last thing before we close, verse 13. Letter C on your outline. Who will harm you for doing good? Verse 13, however you divide up Peter's letter and however you break it down into sections, 13 begins a new section. The reason I included it tonight is because some Bible scholars believe 13 is a bridge from everything he said up to now to what he's going to say next. What he begins to say next is, he begins to talk about, you believers are about to start going through some trials and suffering, so I want you to be ready. Notice he changes to the future tense in verse 13. He uses what's called a future participle in Greek, which is rarely used. Some say, how did an unlearned fisherman use it? But well, they did and so he uses a tense and wording that's interesting saying you are about to start going through some sufferings that are about to get worse now remember right now he's writing in 63 ad remember only five years from now persecution gets really bad under nero the emperor of rome so Right now, the kind of persecution, as he's writing the letter they're going through, is they're discriminated against. Nobody, hardly anybody's killed. Nobody's imprisoned. They're discriminated against. Christians are. Uh, Comments are made, subtle comments, slight persecution at work or in society, sometimes they would have their assets frozen, much like our bank accounts. If you're a Christian, they still do that in areas of the world where Christians are persecuted, like Afghanistan. Your assets are frozen, your water's turned off, your electricity's turned off, things like that. They were experiencing some of that, but not much. So most of it was subtle persecution, but in five years, 68 A.D., they're about to experience under Nero the worst persecution Christians have ever faced. You remember Nero, told you his story. Nero uh, hated Christianity with a passion. Um, he wanted, things weren't going well in the empire, he wanted to divert attention away from himself. So, several historians say he set the city on fire. To divert attention away from him, and blamed it on the Christians so he could persecute them. Actually, he wanted to divert attention away from him, and he wanted to build this new palatial complex with a statue to himself. So that's why he wanted the city burned. But blame it on the Christians. So he did. He began to kill Christians one by one. He killed Paul, beheaded him. He killed Peter, who wrote this letter. Crucified him upside down. He would, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in talking about Nero, he would take Christians and he would put them on poles, like a telephone pole as we would know it, and he would tie them on the pole, dip them in oil, set them on fire, prop them back up, and line his garden so they would provide the light at night for him to have parties. Hated Christians. Killed many of them. This is coming down the road. So as Peter starts to write in the future tense, I believe the Holy Spirit showed him, this is coming. So, all of a sudden, now when he says, when somebody does evil to you, you repay them with good, it takes on a whole new meaning. So he asks a question, verse 13, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He's talking about Nero's about to start harming you. And of course the implied answer is nobody. If if you are doing good and you're zealous for doing good, nobody's against you. Everybody loves a do-gooder. Everybody loves it when you do good for them and other people. They like that in general. God will honor you and and nobody's going to condemn you if you do that. He does not say, get militant. Whenever the persecution comes, man, you get ready and you arm yourself and you fight back. Because if you think about it, that's what Peter did. Remember Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus, the authorities are coming to arrest him, to crucify him. And Peter's there and he grabs that sword and he's ready to go. And he whacks at one of them's head and he ducks and cuts his ear off. And Jesus said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Puts his ear back on, reattaches it. Peter, put your sword away. But now, Peter says, when somebody does evil, don't get out your sword. You do good back. He's come a long way, hasn't he? God will not, under normal circumstances or any other person, harm you if you're zealous for good works. But notice the word, zealous. Zealous. Does that describe you? Now, don't get me wrong, we all like to do good works, we all like to do good things, but are you zealous for good works? I mean most of us, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll you know every now and then do good and we, it makes us feel good, but whenever somebody's zealous, they're consumed with something. Are you consumed with doing good for people? Now, what he's saying is this, Christians, in that Roman culture where Christianity is about to be hated, you have a unique opportunity. Nobody in that culture is going to be returning good for evil, but if you do it, you'll be unique. They'll notice, and they'll see Jesus. So I want to say the same thing to you. We live in a culture that it's easy to criticize. We don't like some of the laws being done. We don't like some of the way the elections turned out about abortion last night. There are a lot of things we can complain about. And a lot of things we can get just as angry as the other side. But we have a unique opportunity that when we respond to evil with good, they notice they see a difference and they see Jesus because to be honest right now the way many Christians are known we're getting just as angry as they are and we're not returning good for evil we return evil for evil and Peter said guys you have a unique opportunity right now because of your culture to show Jesus brightly And the way you do it, you return good for evil. So do we. Now, one last thought. You may say, Pastor, they don't deserve my blessing. Well, you don't deserve God's blessing either. I don't either. So if we're talking about deserving something, we don't. We don't deserve it either. And you know, you can do good as, as much as you want and as much as God wants us to, and some people will still come against you. They may trump up charges against you. They may make accusations against you. They may still revile you. Because if you think about it, that's what happened to Jesus. He was zealous for good works, and they still trumped up charges and crucified him. So, even though you do these things, doesn't mean everybody's going to like you. But it does mean they will all see the difference Jesus can make. We'll stop there, start with verse 14 next Wednesday night. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Much of what you told us tonight, Lord, is, is hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to respond that way. And God, just to be honest, the only way that we can is if you're controlling our lives, controlling our mouths, controlling our heart. So, Lord, I pray that you will. I pray that you'll remove any anger or bitterness, and our lips will not speak guile, and our mouths will not speak evil. God, help us in those situations, even maybe someone even tonight that we have something against or they have something against us. Lord, may that be buried, and may we bury it, and may we be known as people who are unity of mind, sympathetic, brotherly, loving, tender-hearted, humble-minded, and that, God, we do not repay evil for evil. Give us the power and strength to do it in the day in which we live. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.